It's a joy, a joy to be here. I don't know how long we'll be in Chessington. Uh, we hope to stay long term, but uh, we're, we're waiting on things. We, we have a house in Birmingham, and maybe we'll be back in Chessington sometime permanently. I want to read something to you. I want you to tell me where I read it. He is completely unrepentant. He has never said sorry. He is still in the mindset he had. Who said it and when? Pardon? It was in the news this week. It was in the news this morning. It's Frank Gardner. Frank Gardner, who was shot uh, as he was doing a BBC broadcast some years ago. The cameraman was killed. Frank Gardner was paralyzed as a result of being hit by several bullets. And uh, this week, the man who fired the bullets was executed uh, in, I think, Saudi Arabia. And uh, I think Frank Gardner was asked for his um, reaction. He is completely unrepentant. I'm not going to forgive him, he said. He is completely unrepentant. He has never said sorry. He's still in the mindset he had. It's not often you read in the Telegraph about repentance, is it? Um, I think most of us uh, have had the experience of uh, what I'm calling this morning insincere repentance. We've either seen it in another person or we've uh, experienced it um, ourselves, been guilty of it ourselves. Uh, you know the scene, little Johnny snatches the toy car out of his cousin's hand who loses a couple of fingers in the process. Uh, Johnny begins to cry, big, big tears, and his mother's looking daggers across at your Johnny, your kid, so you rebuke your little monster and you say, now say sorry to your cousin and give him the car. Now the tone of voice that carries the word sorry is pathetic. It's half snarl and it's half rebellion. And it's half, there are three halves in us. It's half, <laughs> this is a game of three halves. It, and it's half, I'm not sorry at all, actually. And, and never did a hand return a toy so reluctantly and half-heartedly. Honours are even, however, respect's been restored. But there's not been a single drop of true repentance in the whole sorry mess. But Johnny said sorry but he's not repented. And in almost every congregation, every Christian congregation, some of that will be going on. Now, I'm mentioning that because repentance is very important to God. For instance, uh, Israel, uh, as a nation in the Old Testament, became guilty of rebellion against God. She spurned God's law. She denied his sovereign claims. And she defiled his honor by putting her trust in the nature gods of the nations around them in the ancient Near East. And, be, and because Israel had abandoned the Lord and begun to serve pagan gods, God sent his judgment upon them. He sent invaders into their land. And uh, those invaders dragged many thousands of Jews off into exile they dragged them out of the land of promise and they took them away into places like Babylon. It was known in the, as the exile. It's one of the biggest, most important events in Jewish history called the exile. They had Jewish blood in their veins, but they had pagan worship in their hearts. 
So God kept sending them his prophets who called them to repentance. Now, one of the greatest examples of this is in the last prophet in the Old Testament whose name is Malachi. Let me just read to you something that Malachi said uh, on behalf of God. I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, against those who oppress the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the immigrant. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you're not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Now that's repentance. That's what Malachi was urging the people to turn back to God with all their hearts, and he would return to them. That's what repentance is. It's, it's turning your heart and your life back towards God, not just once, not just now and then, but as a lifestyle. Repentance isn't something you do once every week when you come to church, or as some people are familiar with doing, going to confession every now and then to see the priest. Repentance is continuously turning back to God because there's something in all our hearts that keeps dragging us away from Him. It's called the old nature. Now, one of the other amazing aspects of this prophetic preaching uh, to the Israelites in Babylon was that God had promised them a new exodus. The old exodus was when they came out of the land of Egypt across the wilderness into the promised land. That was the old, that was the exodus. Now, God was promising them. They were in exile in Babylon now, five, six hundred years before the birth of Jesus, and God was promising them through the prophets that there would be a new exodus. They would come out of Babylon, and they would return to Jerusalem and to the promised land. And uh, along with that promise was the, was, the, was the prediction that God would come to them in a new way. If you read Luke chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, let me just read that to you again. Here is John the Baptist. And he comes to preach a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, this is from one of those prophets, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, See, God is going to come again in the new way, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all people will see the salvation of God. Now, that's a passage from Isaiah, and it's saying, it's saying Jerusalem would have the great joy of having God come to them in a fresh way, coming to their city, bringing love, bringing mercy, bringing salvation. And as they return to God in repentance for their sin, he would return to them in the person of a coming shepherd king. That's what it says in Isaiah chapter 40. Now, 450 years after Malachi's ministry and 700 years after Isaiah's voice, there is a preacher in the countryside calling on the people to repent. 
The word of God came to John. We call him John the Baptist, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Here is the man that Isaiah prophesied about, the preacher in the wilderness, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. It's all kicking off here in Luke chapter 3. Yes, it is. It's all kicking off here in Luke chapter 3. Now, Luke's anxious to make sure that we understand the dating of John's ministry. He gives six historical markers to define the exact period when the Baptist ministry started. Look at that in verses 1 to 2. I felt some sympathy for Margot as she read those quite difficult words, Trachonitis and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. They're not easy to say, are they? I probably missaid them myself. But it, this was a very tough period for the Jewish people. The Romans were the occupying force. And uh, they had just recently begun to consolidate their power in the Middle East after the death of Augustus Caesar. They were now ruled by a man called Tiberius who was a thug. He was a despot. He was ruthless. He was a new emperor in Rome. The inheritance that God had given the Jews, the promised land was being diminished by Roman taxation. They were... They were funding their army of occupation by bleeding the Jewish people dry by their taxation system. Freedom fighters rose up from time to time uh, and they were put down with, with great cruelty. And Jesus was a little boy. The Romans took 2,000 rebels and they crucified them all along a main road going up towards Jerusalem. 2,000 men dying by crucifixion because they'd risen up against the occupiers. What's happening in Syria has always been happening in one way or another. It was a time of occupation. There were Jews there who were collaborators with the Romans, who were collecting their taxes for them. It was a time of hopelessness, apparent hopelessness, and it was at this dreadful time for the Jewish nation that God stretched out his arm, and he began to stretch out his mighty arm in a very peculiar way. What does God do when he launches his saving initiative? Well, he sends weak instruments. Here is God's freedom fighter come to reestablish God's rule. A single preacher in the wilderness calling on people to repent because God was about to send their king. That's the revolution that's going on here in Luke Chapter 3, he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That means, that's shorthand for faith and repentance. Repentance and faith. Baptism is a sign that you're turning from your old way of life, you're believing the message, turning from your old way of life, and turning back your life back towards God. You believe the message and you've turned your life around repentance and faith. John was a Baptist, was baptizing people who were believing the message. And Luke tells us where his ministry was located. It was east of the nation in the region of the Jordan Valley. The Israelites, when they'd come out of Egypt, had come across the wilderness. It took them 40 years. And then they'd entered the promised land across this very river, 
perhaps even near this very spot where John was baptizing people in the River Jordan. Uh, Now, he was this God-sent preacher calling them back to God in this very region. And it's though John is kind of reenacting Jewish history. You must return to the God who brought you into this land because he's about to return to you. God is coming. I'm here to prepare the way. Every valley shall be leveled and so on. So this is God's special forces. Anybody here read of the, um, the, the first action on D-Day? It took place at a place called Pegasus Bridge in Normandy. There's a great book. Who's it by? Can't remember. I can't remember either. We're both of a similar age. He's a bit younger than me. But this, this was the first action. And this handful of men were, were towed up into the sky in gliders and then using only a compass... On a stopwatch, they flew in the dark. And their aim was to take Pegasus Bridge. If they didn't take Pegasus Bridge, the Germans would would send reinforcements on the D-Day landing might fail. And some of them landed within a hundred yards of the bridge. Handful of men. Well, here is God's special forces. The SAS of Almighty God is coming It's a man dressed in strange clothes who eats locusts for breakfast. And he's in the wilderness. The new new king's coming and the herald doesn't encourage them to take up swords and spears. He doesn't call them to fill their hearts with a passionate hatred for the Roman tax collectors. Instead, he urges them to take their hearts and fill them with repentance. That's always what God does when he begins a revolution, whether it's across a nation, or in your heart or mine. Return to him, and he will return to you, is the message. Do you want to prepare the way for the king to come? Fill your hearts with repentance. It's like Islamic terrorists trying to scare the Western world by handing out balloons in the Bentall Center. God's revolution. A single preacher calling people to repentance. You see, that's how God establishes kingdoms. That's how God establishes his kingdom in Epsom. That's how he will establish his kingdom in this church in Epsom by a weak preacher calling people to repent of their sin and believe the message of salvation. It's not much. See, that's how God establishes kingdoms. The Romans knew how to establish a kingdom, didn't they? In AD 70, when General Titus came, he besieged this rebellious city of Jerusalem. He put three legions on the city's western side. He put one legion on the eastern side of the town. And then he allowed thousands upon thousands of pilgrims to come in because it was the Passover. And then he refused to let them out again. And doing that, he put intolerable pressure on the city's food and water supplies. Thousands perished of starvation. Thousands more were put to the sword. The temple was burned. And the Roman soldiers, in order to try and get their hands on the molten gold that was in the temple, they ripped apart the stones to get their hands on molten gold. 
That was how you establish a kingdom. Most of the Jews were scattered among the nations. That's how you establish a kingdom, isn't it? Kill everybody. There are people in our world today who want to establish kingdoms in that way. But when the, her the herald of God's new king came, he was a lone voice preaching in the wilderness, repentance and faith. God is about to conquer the world and establish his kingdom through the preaching of a single voice. And it's important because none of you can enter the kingdom of God without repentance and faith. Listen to the prophet John. Unless you repent, you're destined for God's judgment. It's a, not an, it's a bit awkward to be saying that when we're just enjoying a new year. But unless you repent, you're destined for God's judgment. Listen to the prophet John. You brood of vipers, verse 7. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. There's a terrible judgment coming. It's pictured here as a fire sweeping through the long grass with the snakes fleeing ahead of the flames, trying to escape with their lives, but trying to escape in a hopeless manner. They're wriggling and squirming, but they can't outrun the fire. Fire is going to overtake them. And what John's saying is there's only one way to escape the judgment of God, and it's not by trying to outrun it with our human schemes, with our decency, with our good works, with our philosophy and our religions. If you put your confidence in your own goodness and in your own qualities and in your own decency and in your own estimation of yourself, you'd be like these vipers trying to escape a fire without hope of success. The only hope against the coming judgment is repentance and faith. That's what this message says in a very serious way. And when John spoke of uh, vipers, he was speaking to religious people. So the great question that with which we start this new year, this morning, is have you begun to live a life characterized by repentance and faith? I'm not asking you if you made a sincere decision to follow Jesus some years ago. I'm not asking you if you're trying your level best to be a decent person. I'm asking you, is this the culture of your inward life? I'm asking if this is the culture of your personal center, the thing that is at the core of you, around which everything else revolves. See, my friends, this is what the Baptist is pointing us to. Believe in the King. Return to Him with all your heart and with all your life. Verse 11 describes a repentant life. John answered, what should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. A repentant life is a life that God loves God enough and has returned to God so deeply that it 
it is sacrificially generous. It has two tunics and it's willing to give 50% of them away. Don't pretend that you have a repentant life, John's saying, if you're mainly self-centered about your stuff. If you're a tree growing to the glory of God, then one of the fruits that will grow upon you will be sacrificial generosity. You won't need to hang on to your stuff as the core of your security because the king will be your security at the very core of your life, at your personal center. Verses 12 to 13 describe a repentant life. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to do. And some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. It describes a repentant life. It's a life of honesty. It's a life of integrity. It's a life that's straight and true. It doesn't impoverish other people so that I can be enriched to gain personal selfish advantage. It doesn't live by the philosophy that other people are there for me. They're there to do me some good. No, I'm a tree to the glory of God. I'm producing fruit suitable to repentance and I treat other people in the same way as I myself would like to be treated. Now, I'm a Manchester United supporter, but I am appalled at the way people are speaking about the manager of my team. They don't like his tactics. They don't like the results. We've hardly scored a goal in 15 years, whatever it might be. But the way he's being treated is no way to treat another human being. I don't have to manipulate people for my own advantage because I've got the king as the center of my existence. People who know me at work <coughs> know that I'm a person who gives himself for the benefit of others, who treats other people as I would like to be treated myself. That's the fruit of a repentant life. A life that's turned towards God. Verse 14 describes a repentant life. Verse 14 describes a repentant life. Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. It's a life of consideration for the needs of others. It's a life that refuses to do what everyone else in my culture or my working life is doing, ripping people off. Other soldiers might be making a quick buck out of stretching the rules, but not me. I'm a believer in Christ. I'm a tree bearing the fruits of repentance towards the living God. Other people can see me approaching and they know that they're safe with me. I'm going to use my position and my resources to treat them fairly and to do them good. I don't have to bully people into having things my own way because I can rest at, the personal, at my personal center in the king's loving grace, and I can leave outcomes to him. See, my friends, this is, this is the message that's going to establish the kingdom of God. It's a message about God's king coming into his world to win his world back to himself. It's about a kingdom that's unlike any other kingdom established on the earth. And it begins with people being baptized because of repentance and faith who begin to bear the fruit 
of a God-centered, Christ-exalting personal center. That's how God establishes his kingdom. He's no good trusting in anything else. These religious leaders were likely to say, well, we've got Abraham as our father. We don't need to hear your message, John the Baptist. We don't need our lives to change. We don't need a radical overhaul. We have something else to trust in that will get us through life quite satisfactorily. Thank you very much. We're all like that by nature. Some of you here this morning, sadly, are like that by nature. You've got something from your background, from your personal experience of life, from your achievements. You think that stuff, that thing will be enough to satisfy the living God on the day of judgment. I used to think that God was like a great big banker who had a record of all my good deeds and a record of all my bad deeds and on the day of judgment I would find myself in credit. I was a blaspheming, irreligious idiot. But I always imagined that if there was a God somewhere and there was, if there was a day of judgment, I'd be all right because I'd just scrape in because my good deeds would a little bit outweigh my bad deeds. I have Abraham as my father. I've got enough to get me through. Some of us here today, sadly, are living a life which is not bearing the spiritual fruit of a surrendered, a heart surrendered to the king. We're not really generous. We're not committed passionately to a God-centered lifestyle. We fit God and we fit the church around our personal agenda. We think that God will be satisfied with that. And Jesus says, and John the Baptist says, don't you know that God could make that kind of devotion out of the stones if he wanted to? He's not impressed in the least with anything less than a heart that's joyfully turned back towards him in faith and repentance. He wants you to be joyfully abandoned to him. Any other kind of religious lifestyle is not going to please him. Don't try to show God your religious credentials. He's not impressed. Wasn't impressed with mine. Every tree that doesn't bear the fruit of faith and repentance, says John, is cut down and thrown into the fire. It's a picture of judgment. King has come, my friends. His name is Jesus. He's coming again. Next time he's coming in overwhelming judgment. Is your heart turned in humility towards him and his kingdom? Is it the culture of your heart that every day and each day you seek to turn your life towards him and in your habits and attitudes to please Jesus because he's died to save you from your sin? That's what King Jesus came to do, to baptize you into a life of faith and repentance through the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And in order to make this real, in order to make you a member of his kingdom, he died on the cross for your forgiveness. Experienced God's judgment on the cross 
so that you might never have to experience that judgment personally. And then he rose from the grave to guarantee eternal life for all who trust him. And then he ascended to heaven to rule at God's right hand until he returns. Until all things are brought under his rule, including you and me and our personal center. Let's pray. Eternal Father, we bow before you with a sense of trepidation at the power and searching content of John's message. We thank you that you raised him up to prepare the way for the coming of the king. And if the king is going to come into our hearts and rule there, in grace and mercy, then there must be repentance and faith in our hearts. The door must be opened by sorrow for our sin and our selfishness and our mean-spiritedness and our pride. We come to you this morning, Heavenly Father, help us to begin this new year trusting not in our own decency, not in our religious instinct, but in Jesus who died for us and rose again that we might be eternally safe. So please have mercy upon us and help us to live this year with the King and his rule at our personal center. For we ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen.